Hello, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome. You may or may not be familiar with Conversant, but our work focuses on how conversation and human connection improve performance and vitality. And language is a big part of that. Language is a primary means of communication, and it's a medium for expressing ourselves. In an article Stanford published a few years back featuring some of their research into language, they considered language a cultural, social, and psychological phenomenon. In other words, language shapes and is shaped by our culture, our social interactions, and our psychology. We also hear and interpret through the lens of personal, social, and cultural history, and it's more than likely that the meaning I make of a word could be pretty different from the meaning that you create. The work of linguists, sociologists, and psychologists reveals just how complex the science of language can be, but to be essential, it matters. It's a powerful thing that we tend to take for granted. How we speak, what words we choose, and how we listen and interpret are all important parts of human interaction, and no less important at work. Of course, defining language itself can be hard. Depending on your discipline, you may set the boundaries differently. Merriam-Webster defines language as the words, their pronunciation, and the methods of combining them used and understood by a community. Cambridge Dictionary defines it as a system of communication consisting of sounds, words, and grammar. If you're a nerd like us, I highly recommend reading the Britannica page on language. There's some really interesting insights and fun facts about how it's historically been related to and defined. Britannica itself offers this definition. A system of conventional spoken, manual or signed, or written symbols by means of which human beings, as members of a social group and participants in its culture, express themselves. The functions of language include communication, the expression of identity, play, imaginative expression, and emotional release. Even reading these definitions, it makes me wonder who was involved in choosing those words to define this word. What alternatives were proposed in each case and why weren't they chosen? The crafters of dictionary definitions would agree that words really do matter. And while we could debate what qualifies as language for an eternity, I think I'll leave that to the experts. If there's something essential to take away from this conversation, it's that whatever your means of communication, how and what we communicate matters. On either side of communication, there's a communicator and an audience. As you'll hear us talk about in this episode, there's responsibility in both roles. If we're the communicator, of course, there is power and great responsibility there, being aware of the audience and choosing language that leads to connection and most effectively translates what we're hoping to express or the insight or behavior we're hoping to cause. It's then easy to think that as a member of the audience, we're just passive receivers of whatever is communicated. That feels pretty powerless. We aren't just victims to whatever gets said to us. We can choose how we listen, what we hear, and what story we create from it. We do that unconsciously anyway, create stories and react to them, so why not have some agency in the process? We create explanations in our heads about whatever we hear, but what is the most valuable explanation? Are we asking ourselves that question often enough? At the heart of truly valuable communication is an awareness of and mutual respect for how we as humans make sense of the world. It is rarely perfect, my story matching your story. And that is why there is an art and design to great conversation that we can be students of. We have to be able to engage with one another's stories, listen for what matters, and get curious about better understanding another's world, their lens. We have to ask great questions and give honest answers. 
And that all happens through language and, we would add, through presence. Mickey and our colleague Katie Mingo, who's an associate consultant at Conversant, are both deeply passionate about language, and they were exactly the right people to talk to about the power language carries and the responsibility we each have as we inhabit it. Hello, 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 and welcome back to yet another episode of On Connection. We are happy to have you, and I'm very happy to be joined by Mickey, who is our regular on the pod, and Katie Mingo, who is a new voice and uh, a very important part of our organization. So very happy to have her thoughts now present here on the podcast. And today we're going to talk about the power of language and you two specifically. I wanted to make sure we're on this episode because I know you both have a deep care for language. And so why don't we start there? What what is it if you could name just one thing that makes you care so much about language? Katie, our guest, please. What do you think? Thanks, Rose. I'm really excited to, to be on the episode today. Um, for me, there's an experience that goes all the way back to childhood. Uh, so as some at Conversant know, I spent three years living in Japan And I had a moment with one of my teachers there where she just took me aside and she said, I've been working on my English and I need to know something. What is the difference between the word grass, G-R-A-S-S, and glass, G-L-A-S-S? Because that sounds exactly the same to me. And we sat for an hour and I was 11 at this point. We sat for an hour at different like times over, over the course of a while. Um, trying to figure it out. And by the end of our conversation, I had no idea what it was either. I couldn't tell the difference between those two words. And it was something that I had never once thought about in my life that those were, uh, those could be difficult to, to confuse. And so that led me to love the way that people interact with language differently and how uh, not only we form words differently, but we interpret them differently. Um, and there's always more to discover there and led me to study language in college. And I think ultimately led me to conversing as well. Mm. And Mickey? Oh, well, in one way is, I don't know, I was born caring. (laughs) I was, I've always been a reader, somebody interested in this topic. The first time I consciously remember being awed by language is reading Helen Keller's report in her own words of what really happened at the well with Annie Sullivan. Cause there've been so much written about that and movies and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, up to that moment of reading what Helen said, I thought that what happened was that, this woman, Annie Sullivan, kept making the sign for water on Helen's hand. And then Helen got, oh, that means water. And then that started them being able to communicate with each other. Helen said what happened in that moment was not that she knew that thing meant water. She said it was her first experience of anything that she can remember. She said it was in that moment the world appeared. 
that this attempt at bridging between these two entities in a language suddenly had her be aware of other and herself. And she said, in that moment, the world appeared. And I thought, wow, wow. Language can have us go from completely disconnected from ourselves, consciousness, anything else, to suddenly there's a world. That's interesting. <laughs> and that was back in, I don't know, freshman year in college or something. Well, clearly very powerful, which is why we wanted to talk about it. And uh, I think you're both bringing up that there's something just to simply grow our awareness of, which is the significance of language and all of the different ways that we interact, engage, react, um, and get affected by it. And so I know we wanted to start the conversation there, that there is a, a responsibility that we all have to just recognizing the power of language and what we can affect in others and in ourselves through that medium. And especially when it comes to work and leadership, that the, what we say really matters, how others hear us matters, how we engage with how they hear us matters. And that we, we like to say a lot that we're influencing all the time and people, especially if you're a leader in an organization, people are watching you all the time. So everything you're doing, everything you're sending, everything you're saying, everything you're not saying, people are watching and interpreting in some way. And that just growing your awareness of that simple fact will move you in the direction of causing greater value and showing up in the way that you really want to. Um, what else would you guys have to say about just this concept of becoming aware of the power of your language? Well, I think if we really were serious about being conscious, aware in the moment of the impact of the way I listen and the way I speak, it would not be a solo journey. Like, oh, I'm just going to get more aware. Yeah. <laughs> Because I find that I rarely go from unaware to aware by myself. Mm -hmm. So just like Annie occurred to Helen as not me, <laughs> and suddenly the world appeared. I need some not me, because me only is aware of what me is aware of. So I think, in France, a CEO that I really am admiring his courage recently started working with two people very deep into his organization in different spots of the organization to let him know how he's occurring. And if they keep alive this trio of feedback, his awareness of how the way he's interpreting what people say to him, which you know, for us, that's an act of listening, and the way he's expressing things, is it having the impact that he intends? So that he just even has this conspiracy of awareness. I think it's terrific. So the first thing that hit me when you said that, Emerose, is don't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. Enroll some other people, one or two other people to say, let's start helping each other notice the impact of what we say on who we say it to. Mm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really, really good. Um 
I was in a, a room with a, a client a few weeks ago. And one thing that she said was that she, there, that our team had a way of putting words to things that reflected how it was and resonated with them as a whole and as a group. And I think exactly what you're saying is that it's because we're not looking at it from one perspective. We're not looking at it by ourselves as we're, we're listening and pulling all of those together is, is what has that be the case. I also think there's a, an awareness and respect for how people speak. So when somebody says that to one of us or several of us, Katie, I think the source of it is because we go in and we listen for words they use passionately or repetitively or both. And we explore, what does that mean to you? You know, we don't just say, oh, well, they, they said accountability, that really matters to them. We say, can you talk to us a little bit about what has accountability be such a passionate topic? So we do the work to appreciate what the words that people use with such fervor, <laughs> what has happened in life that has that mean what it means. And then we often find out that what we thought when they said the word accountability and what they were present to when they said it weren't remotely the same thing. We do the work, though, to make sure that we're, I know this is a stunning concept, that we're actually in communication <laughs> <laughs> out of interest in and respect for their language. Uh, and it's why I really, as both of you know, I've always loved that passage from Heidegger about language is the house of being, and it is in this home that human dwells. And those who think and those who create with words are the guardians of humanity's home. All right, well then, are we? do we want to get to know someone's home, their linguistic home, and not assume that because we both use the same word, we're sharing the same meaning? Mm -hmm. It's amazing how often that happens when you can use the same phrase, the same word with someone for for weeks and ask one question that opens it up entirely. Um, I keep coming back to this idea that language is is not neutral and is never neutral. The the nuances of what you're saying, the emotional quality you bring to it, it's all giving clues to what you what you care about, where you're where you're from, what relationship you have to the world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's something too about. Um, we were talking in the pre-show here about how we can just pass over the significance of what we say so quickly or the significance of what somebody else said. Like you're saying what, what that word means to them. Um, especially when we're hurried and just trying to get from one thing to the next, we can make action matter more than words and words are the thing that precedes the action or the reaction. So taking time to recognize that is so important. I was telling you both the story of that. I remember when I was in Sunday school, when I was younger, they had us do an exercise with partners where we had a tube of toothpaste and they asked us to squeeze as much of the toothpaste out of the tube as we could, and then try to put the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> And so then there's just a bunch of, you know, young kiddos trying to force toothpaste into a toothpaste tube and probably making a huge mess. And the lesson that they left us with at the end is that the toothpaste is like your words and that the things you say are out there in the world and you can't take them back. And they've already impacted whoever heard them. And 
I think that being conscious of that is such a powerful thing and would make you pause. I think it's an act of presence, uh, which we talk about a lot in our practice that you have to be present to the moment, to the person you're with, and then choose your words um, and have it be a reaction to listening and paying attention to the situation that you're in and already sharing with this other person. You know, the, as you were telling that story, it has me really think about how many people who are smart in other ways, powerful, uh, great in their own imagination, <laughs> who are uh, linguistically not particularly smart. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of one of the things when I wrote this article years ago called The Wages of Words. One of the things that I uh, highlighted in there is way back, this is around 2000, might have been late 90s, Daimler and Chrysler merged, you know, these two huge automobile organizations. And the CEO of Daimler at that time was uh, Jurgen Shrimp. And he had this big message during the negotiations and the announcement and the original meetings with employees and stockholders, how excited he was to preside over this merger of equals. Then a couple of years later, he gave an interview in the Financial Times in which he said he always intended to control Chrysler, but that Chrysler would only agree to a merger, not a takeover. So we had to go a roundabout way because it had to be done for psychological reasons. Because what had happened since then is firing all kinds of Chrysler people and putting all the Daimler people in charge of certain things. And what happened after that is that lawsuits were filed from several parts of the world by stockholder groups. One of them, a billionaire named Kirk Kikorian, his initial salvo was a $300 million claim. And I don't remember how it all turned out, but I think the total damages that was paid out to settle the lawsuits that all came from him saying that was over a billion dollars. And this has got to be an incredibly accomplished, intelligent, human being to get to be the CEO of Daimler, one of the historically great companies in the world, you know. Okay. Well, maybe not particularly smart about (laughs) the power of language and the wages of your words. You can't jam that back into the toothpaste tube. Well, what strikes me about both your story, Vicki, and and Emma Rose, that lesson is that it's it's so often not about malintent, good and evil, evil, but thoughtlessness versus the presence we were talking to. So do we have that responsibility to our language and to our words? Um, and thinking about the the number of shortcuts we often take in language that can have us feel more thoughtless um, or or be rushed and hurried on to the next the next thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm thinking about the the number of of uh, you know two line emails or acronyms or or just all of the all the ways that we cut corners in our day to try to get onto the next thing. Mm. It also makes me think um, that I think people can be thoughtless when they're very focused on their words being received in a particular way. And I'm thinking about the context of when people are trying to be funny, like in humor, 
I think that can happen, which is really an act of wanting to belong and be accepted and, you know, have here, we want other people to laugh at you. Um, or saying things out of desperation for being well-liked or um, accepted in some way. I just think of those times what, that I've seen myself do it. I've seen others do it where that's when you walk away and go, what the hell just came out of my mouth? <laughs> like an alien invader just came into my body, said those words out of my mouth and then left. And now I'm here with the consequences. <laughs> But I think that that comes from um, our emotional states. So are we conscious of our emotional state? You know, are we anxious, fearful? Do we feel desperate in any way? Um, or are we grounded and listening well? What's our, what's our measure of how present and ready we are to really take responsibility for how we're showing up linguistically with others? You know, we could have... 30 years just on this first topic, which is, are we aware of the power of language? Uh-huh. And uh, since we're hoping to not take that much of your time on this podcast, <laughs> uh, I just want to say just apprenticing the power of language and not just in speaking, also in listening is a, a worthwhile lifelong pursuit Katie, you know, we were talking earlier about even as a listener, when somebody says something, you have options about how you interpret that. Do you want to say anything about that and why you think that that's a powerful thing to be aware of? Yeah, sure. Um, So this partially goes back to my story earlier about the, you know, the difference between L and R, and I'd never once thought about it in my life. But just the idea that someone was thinking about it differently opened up those new possibilities. So to connect this back to those choices we have, the way that we approach a conversation, the the listening quality we come to it with, am I trying to be liked? Like you said, Emma Rose, am I searching for that belonging? Am I trying to add value? Do I just want my voice in the room and trying to be heard? Uh, am I trying to make a splash? All of those things give us different options to approach the way we show up in a conversation. And I think we have that that ability to come out of of one or not find ourselves stuck in the one way to say something or the one way to listen and open that up to, to other ideas too. I think what's unusual is for people to be conscious of that, what you just said about the one way to listen, because people tend to have their first reaction. Well, that's all there is. You said something and I'm offended. Do I stop and consider the quality of my comprehension or do I just immediately (laughs) think that whatever I felt when you said what you said, that's the only option because, you know, I'm a good person and I heard what you said and I heard you were an insulting creep. So that, that there can be an option in what we hear, we can actually stop, take a breath and say, are there other various interpretations of that? Could I ask a few questions? Could I, most people are stuck with their first response, which means they don't have any options. So I like what you just said. I don't want it to go by so fast and <laughs> options and listening. Yeah. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. people yeah. are quick to go, oh yeah, I've got options about what I say. Mm-hmm. You mean well, I, I, I could take responsibility for what I'm perceiving? Now that's mm-hmm. interesting. Emrose, you're going to say something? Well, well, and for how I'm being affected, um, I just remember growing up 
that it, when guy when guy and I would get into it, guy my brother, um, and I would say, well, he made me mad, or <laughs> well, he made me sad. He made me upset, and um, my parents, one half of that team being present on this call would say, did he make you mad? Did he, did he force you to feel mad right now? Is he the sole reason? And just that the parenting um, opportunity in that, of that you're choosing how to react to what he did. Um, now, am I super reliable for being a perfect human being about taking responsibility for how I react to the things that people say and do to me? No. and a guy can attest to that to this day so um but the just the the lesson of that we have a choice even in the space between listening being affected and then reacting like we can be affected but then are we choosing how we react yeah are we present to that moment um because so much of how we interpret is based on you're talking about the home that we live in. I mean, there's a a home that we live in individually too, and that we have all of our memories and stories all decorating the walls. And that's the filter through which we're, (laughs) we're getting affected. And so usually it's, which, you know, we call fast pass matching, which we've referred to a number of times on this podcast, but we're, we're experiencing this moment through the lens of a bunch of other moments that we've had and a bunch of other stories. So unfortunately those are all ours instead of that other person's, they didn't force us to see it that way or feel that way. And can we recognize even the responsibility in that moment too? So, sorry, I went back to responsibility and awareness again, but I guess they all. Well, I, I, I love when you brought this to responsibility because there's yeah. that sense of individual responsibility. Am I going to be responsible for my own emotional state? Because if you don't learn to do that, then you're always the victim of whatever somebody else does. Right. So I think that's great. Yeah. We can also expand this notion of responsibility in the domain of the power of language. So if you're aware of the power, somebody else I really admire, a man named Robert Gruden, who wrote a book I really love called Time and the Art of Living. And in there, he talked about that valuable or not valuable, but theses in general are proven by concoctions of reason and time. So he talked about words forcibly and quotably phrased, calmly delivered in speech and writing, patiently repeated at intervals. And he said, if you come to know the truth about truth, it's not that it's self-evident, but it becomes truthful out of repeated contact. And if the bearer of the message is persistent, something that can be used for good or evil, because mm. it's mm-hmm. true. Uh, and if you go back to the bestseller from uh, eight or nine years ago, I think On Tyranny by Professor Timothy Snyder, and he talks about the big lie and about, and also in his uh, book Bloodlands, which was about the Stalinist and Hitlerian regimes and 14 or 15 million people dying. 
in all of those studies of tyranny, he says there are people that just start with a lie that they know is a lie and just tell it always and everywhere and say it so often and use their position power as the pulpit from which they're credentialed to speak that it just over time becomes, it seems like the truth because we hear it all the time. So when you brought this to responsibility, I think for leadership, there's a huge thing about, are we being deceptive and manipulative with the power of language? Are we actually creating connections in which we come together and explore and improve the life that we share? Those are very different places to go with language. One of them really leans into the power of an authentic community, and the other is just covert and overt domination where people with an agenda try to pervert the power of language into giving them an opportunity to be in charge. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I just, I appreciate the, what's the source of truth? Like who's the decider of what is truth? And are you as a leader recognizing that my truth might not be, because you said that about like, and they know it's a lie, but I wonder if some people it's their truth. And then they're out there disseminating their truth, but they're not checking in on what is true for others. And is this going to be in service of what's what we're in together? You know, what's our. Well, at least what I got from Snyder's writings. Is it's. That in the beginning, there could be somebody that knows this is not true. Right. Yeah. Uh The more that they use their position power and power of influence to promulgate it, the more people, oh, it is true. It's true. There's no question. You know, those Jewish people really do need to be eradicated from our society. Really? Uh, So, yeah, over time, it becomes the truth. Mm. And even that question, Emrose, I didn't know we were going to go here on this conversation, but I'm going to see if I can make a sense that's not already clear in my head before I'm talking. <laughs> People are frequently, especially over the last decade, over and over and over again, this thing about alternate truths, or my truth, your truth, is there a the truth? I think that the place to stand is not, is that true or not? The place to stand is, if we st- Stick with that as the truth. What does it help or hurt? What does it fulfill or not? What does it achieve or not? Because what governs is the purpose we've got in the background. And when we get in these arguments where we're each using some set of facts to promote a point of view, there's really no shared intention in the background. And so I think if you really want to deal with the conflict of, well, people don't have the same facts. All right. What intention can we share? Mm -hmm. Right. And is there anything that we can share in common and then see which facts help that or not? And starting with, well, where do we agree? What do we both agree is true? I don't care how modest it seems that 
you'll find some things in common if we have an intention in common, if we have something at stake that we have mutual care for. And so I think when people start arguing about what's a fact, it'd be good to change the conversation to what do we care about together that we'll stand in in order to work through that question about what's factually important. I think, I think that does confuse a lot of people when we say it at first around this, what is a fact and and how does that, does that take place in language in conversation versus how is the definition of of facts going back to our, our idea around, we don't want to assume we mean the same thing by a certain word. Um, But this idea of a scientific fact, something that's observable and a fact in conversation, do you, do you share that fact with me? And do we, can we use that as something to build on? Or is it a point where I'm going to hope that my position power, if I say it loud enough and I say it repeatedly enough, it convinces you somehow that it's true. Uh, but I, I think that is some a distinction that comes up quite often when we work with, with various teams around what is, you know, the sky is blue kind of fact or something that we can try to convince others of and we know it for ourselves as individuals and what is a, a fact in discourse. Mm. Well, and I'm, there's something that's hitting me right now too, about, you know, we're calling this episode, the power of language, but we're really talking about that language is power. And in the state of the world right now, there's a lot of conversation about power and how you take responsibility for that. And are we aware of how we're wielding that power? Um, who has the privilege of that power? Um, and that words and language are very much a part of that. And we don't have the guidebook to how to be a good human being and do good things and all of that completely finished. We'll get back to you, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, again, I guess just going back to the awareness part of it and that it is something that is shared. It, you are not separate from the world that you live in when you occupy that kind of power? Well, the responsible use of power, that's a very interesting ethical challenge. Power, whether it's in a particular position someone might hold in an organization, inside of that, then looking at what's the power of language and am I being responsible for the power of language given my social power? And that, is something that I would love to see way more powerful senior organizational leaders become conscious of that when people are in a position where their words will be heard and whether or not they'll be responded to the way you intend, but they've got a pulpit. (laughs) They have a forum that's always available. Are we consciously using that in a way that's responsibly forwarding what people hope we're leading. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this thing can get you starting with the awareness that y'all were speaking about, about are we even conscious of the power of language? And then if we are, well, then we can start exploring, well, how do I be responsible for the way I listen or speak, actually helping or hurting things that really matter to me? And then this idea that in that context of responsibility, you actually have options. Oh, 
like you talking about that story with Guy. Okay, I've got options. I can say he made me mad. Or I can say he did this. And I got mad. I wonder what the difference is in terms of how I feel and what I'm going to do next. If he made me mad or I got mad. Hmm. You know, that that's as a child, you giving yourself some options at that time where you're not just stuck with the one option that life provided. Mm -hmm. right. so, Richard Reinishek, you know, who's the, as y'all know, the co-founder of Conversant. I'm going to go back to him and talk to him about the details of this because it's so powerful. I'm forgetting the details, but he used to do this thing he called M1, M2 with people where he'd have somebody say something in a room and then he'd ask people to write down, what did that mean to you? And then he'd get somebody to say, well, that meant this. And he would write up that and he'd put M1 next to it. And then he would say, does anybody else have a potentially different meaning for what that meant? He could get to M10 in a room full of 20 people uh -huh. where this one comment <laughs> There's 10 different, at least slightly different interpretations of what that meant. And he did that for people to wake up to. You cannot take meaning for granted. That we are creating meaning and that it becomes mutual is a reciprocal exploration. Right. And I suppose if you think about that, most people, you know, that one comment how many comments are in your day? You multiply that by the number of opportunities we have to, to disconnect from each other or to come closer and closer together, depending on how we respond to that and what we how we interpret it next. Mm, I love that. I just want to don't want to miss that because I know Katie, you had mentioned it before too, but um that language can either connect or divide. And I think that's so important. Your language has the power to either connect people and bring them together around something or divide them. And you're doing one of the two all the time because you're saying language isn't neutral. So if language isn't neutral, you're doing one or the other. Right. You're going in one direction or the next. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of experience we have in seeing people, especially the Remember, we're supposed to have multiple generations in this podcast, and you always need some really old people who I'm now representing. If you've been through a few generations of watching leaders grow in their organizational careers, one of the things I've seen that stops people moving up what some people call the leadership pipeline is they think they're a really good team leader because they have around them fervently loyal group of people who loves them and the horse they rode in on and everybody's really tight and solid and looks out for one another. And I mean, this sounds great. You know, so that person ought to become a general manager and then a president of a division and then a CEO. Eh, slow down. Because what happens is that stops a lot of people from progressing in that leadership journey is they learned to create solidarity in a team by creating enemies outside the team. Mm -hmm. And so they're in a larger organization and we're the good people 
and the bad people over there and over there and over there. And we have to stick together to deal with the problem they are and the threat they are. And inside that team, it just feels really bonded. But if you create solidarity by fomenting enemies, you've now limited the size of the group you can be a leader in. It's much more challenging and ultimately worthwhile work to say, how can we be a team in a way that actually is enriching our relationship with the system that we're in? turning the conflicts into opportunities to learn and become smarter together. How that's a, that's more daunting and it requires a lot more exploration into the power of language and my responsibility for how I deploy that power. And from that responsibility, realizing that there's way more options to us than we ever realized if we just notice the different things that happen in the way we speak and listen. Mm -hmm. You know, Mickey, there's something about what you just said that I think often people worry when we say that there's a power about speaking for that we're, that they interpret it as we should only focus on the positive or we should gloss over the rest. And I think what you're saying is actually highlighting that there's something about expanding possibilities in there. It's not about avoiding things that are hard, but it is it is more about what it, what more is open to us when we speak for versus speak against and, and have options that are shut down. So I, I really appreciate that, that part. And I think it's, you know, again, that the show is about multi-generational workplaces. Um, that that's one of the core tensions in in working across generations is those assumptions we make about oh the boomers only want this or Gen Z only wants that, uh, millennials are stuck in the middle somewhere or <laughs> there's something along those lines. But if we can come together around the what are we all for in that? What is the language we have in common? What are the choices available to all of us? Um, and the responsibility and the awareness backing that up. Uh, what what could be possible then? something that I want to sit in for a while. Mm -hmm. You actually just got me in the presence of both the profound and the practical aspects of this exploration of the power of language. Because the profound things for me are, you know, people I've been deeply affected by, like I talked about Helen Keller, Mary Catherine Bateson as a philosopher of deep impact, um, Wittgenstein, Martin Buber, Abraham Joshua Heschel. These are all people that affected me in a profound way about the awesome implications of language. Then there's the practicality of it. And you were just reminding me more, Katie, of the Austin and Searle, <laughs> uh, which is the, the speech act theorists, where it gets very practical you know, where they're talking about the way we speak and practically what does it do or not do? What's the difference between a promise and a request? What's the difference between a declaration and an assertion? And for you, what's the difference between speaking for and what does that do to a relationship and to what people are open to and speaking against? Because the speaking for actually tends to pull people together and the speaking against creates dividing lines. Mm -hmm. And when I, Whenever there's something I'm against, can I stop and take a breath and go, wait a minute, what am I for that has me be against that? 
can I resolve this by speaking for that instead of against this? Mm. That's practical. That's more, I think Austin and Searle would admire what you just said. <laughs> the well, speech act theorists. <laughs> Another example, I mean, that's coming to mind as you say that is uh, an exercise that we've done with people in rooms before is to get them to understand this significance of just a word and the change it makes. Start by saying a sentence, saying something and then following it with but and then continuing the sentence. And say something, but continue the sentence, say something, but continue the sentence, and then flip it and say that they have to say and instead of but, and what kinds of possibilities arise. I'm probably telling, prompting this exercise totally wrong, but the point being that people, when you use the word, but you're creating a, you're rejecting something, right? And Instead, with and, you're expanding what another possibility might be. Right. Well, I think it's it's actually a, a beaut- that's done a lot in improv. You know, when they're training people in improvisational theater, mm-hmm. and it's a brilliant exercise because it really does show something linguistically. That if you do that with people, where you know the three of us, if you know Katie just said something, and then you've got a follow whatever she said with, but, and then say whatever you say. And then we would go back five minutes later, Katie says the same thing and you follow it with and, and you say what you say. And then I have to follow it with and and say whatever I say. It's startling how different the conversations are because linguistically we've affected cognition with a single word. Mm -hmm. One that's a source of connection and the other that's a source of negation. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. That's a fun example of exactly what Katie's talking about, about connect versus divide. Right. Well, and this one might be fun too. um, But in the interest of not um, being glib or skirting over things, um, all the different ways that different generations communicate things, I think can exclude the other generations and that there's something about that in-group out-group that's created through the, the lexicon that we're creating. So emojis and stuff like that. And the fact that now Gen Z says that certain emojis mean totally different things than what millennials thought they mean. And we're not allowed to use those anymore. Otherwise we're old or saying something completely different. Um, or, you know, gifts being a, an entire way that we communicate now and uh, acronyms and things like that, that others might not understand. And I actually think there is an act of inclusion and exclusion in using those forms of language. Well, I've definitely had to have somebody give me a whole new appreciation for what is conveyed by the various depiction of fruits and vegetables. Oh no. <laughs> oh Lord. <laughs> well, so, and, <laughs> and, and I think that one's really powerful no matter what generations you stand in about what do we uh, assume because of our own comfort and what we're saying, how we like to convey things, what those words and phrases mean. How does that unconscious comfort actually prevent us from connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I see it all the time. I watch people enter into new organizations and they're being baffled by the language everybody else is using that they don't understand that jargon and those acronyms and those abbreviations. And, and yet they feel uncomfortable having to ask like, Oh, you're supposed mm-hmm. to know that. Right. So I guess I shouldn't ask. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in linguistics, there is a word for this phenomenon where uh, a word just stops taking on meaning uh, called grammaticalization. And so we see it in, in words like cool, where cool no longer means, uh, you know, a lower temperature, but it, <laughs> it, it, means, it means something that's, you know, affirmative or something you appreciate. And so that that no longer has the same meaning in the dictionary that we thought it did. Mm-hmm. So how many times do you see that in organizations where they talk about an acronym and everyone has, you know, you assume that everyone in the room has the same response to it. And what is it like to be a new person in that organization? Mm-hmm. That is a brilliant example of that. That cool no longer means lower temperature. <laughs> and yet you just woke me up in that moment because I'm sitting there thinking, wow. That was so funny to me because it was an insight that I wasn't being present to. Now I'm wondering where are all the places that what's coming out of my mouth is got assumptions in it about what it means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I see so many employee engagement surveys where people say they don't understand the strategy. Mm -hmm. And then senior executives that get annoyed by that saying, I've explained this over and over and over again. This doesn't make sense that they don't understand. Well, that's because the person who's been explaining it all those times, every time they explain it, they think they're making better sense. Because they understand themselves really well. In fact, it takes them fewer sentences every time to really realize they're making a great point. <laughs> they're getting better. Yeah. However, do they do the work to say, what's the language of the purposes, the concerns, and the circumstances of the people I'm talking to? And how does this translate into that world of linguistic care? We don't do the work mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So we walk around in that grammatical assumption that what's making sense to me should make sense to you. Mm-hmm. Well, we get into trouble with that should word, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> Dangerous. Well, um, we are arriving at the end of our time. Um, so in the few words that we have left... Um, we normally like to close these with what we learned. So what's something that we learned today? Katie? Well, this is uh, maybe back to the profound versus the, the practical, but every every time that I have a conversation with you, Mickey, I, I always jot down a few more books to read, a few more, a few more places to explore. So there's this something about the the endless sea of language that's still that's still there for me, um, which is exciting. So. Thanks. Um, gosh, I have a few things. Uh, so I'm going to start at the end. So this, the last one is just a different kind of awake to this notion of grammar is dynamic, that a word is not a word stuck to be that word and forever understood by all people that grammaticalization that Katie was talking about, it's just getting me back awake to how dynamic language is. And even something that makes impeccable sense 
to me, or in one situation is interpreted as something radically different in another, that can seem impossible, but it's actually a, a, just a chance to be awake in a different way. So I, I like that. And I really love the example of cool because <laughs> I can hold on to that metaphor. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing is all the way back in the beginning of our conversation, just hearing each of your reverence for the topic. What I got out of this is feeling safer. Sometimes I, in a way this can be even be arrogance, but I feel lonely. Like I'm caring more about the power of language than a lot of people are. And what I got out of this is I don't feel lonely at all. I feel safe. Oh. That's really good. Um, well, I'm really stuck with this language. Isn't neutral thing. So Katie, it will haunt me. I think <laughs> if, if nothing that I say is neutral, then, then you can't help, but be aware of the power of it. So, well, thank you for being here and we will see you all very soon. And hopefully you are minding your words until then. Bye-bye for now. Bye everybody. Bye all. This episode was produced by Guy Connolly. Original artwork is by Dana Buckingham and music is by a cast of characters. Special thanks to Conversant's extended community who inspire the continued evolution of our work and stand with us in our commitment to change leadership, business, and the world through conversation. You can learn more about Conversant at www.conversant.com. On Connection is created and produced by the members of Conversant. Awakening the world to the power and joy of authentic human connection, we set a new standard for leadership that produces meaningful, enduring impact. Until next time.